Hi there, this is Ken Roundy, a USH Med student. I have three students with me today, and uh, I've got a topic that I am pretty excited to tackle and terrified uh, about how we'll tackle it. So let's do some introductions. We'll start off with uh, our two um, co-stars of the show today. Uh, let's see, how about if you go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Lexi, and I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And uh, Lexi, it's good to have you here. Thank you. You have a podcast with Melody, who's going to introduce herself in just a moment, that's coming up. Do you want to give us a hint as to what that topic's going to be? Yes. So we are looking into the history of antipsychotics and kind of how they were first discovered, trying to dive into um, the history related to surgeons and anesthesiologists as well. Very, very cool. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, what are you two going into again? What are you going into? I'm interested in general surgery. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Melody, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Melody. I'm also a third year student in Rocky Vista, and I'm interested in anesthesiology. That is so weird that you guys would come up with the role of <laughs> right? anesthesiologists and surgeons in development of antipsychotic medications. I'm looking forward to that, by the way. I think it's a, it's a great story. Uh, the, the guys in France that worked with uh, the, the asylum at the time. Looking very much forward to that. I've actually been trying to get a student to do that for a couple of years now. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Clearly, you guys would get A's if I were your attending. But, uh, <laughs> instead, we've got Dave, <laughs> who we'll, we'll see if he passes the, uh, the uh, class after this. Dave, tell us a little bit more about you. As you know, the start of the show does a little bit deeper introduction. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing. So my name's Dave. I was on the last podcast talking about anticholinergics. And today I would like to talk about complex PTSD and how that differs from PTSD. Um, and also why that is not considered or classified in the DSM-5. And, um, and we'll wait to see if it's something that is in for future DSMs. Yeah, I, I don't know yeah. if it will be. Do you have a sense? Um, my sense right now is that it's not going to make it to the DSM-6, but um, possibly 7 or, or 6TR. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Excellent. How did you get interested in this topic? So um, I would say that child abuse is something that is a personal issue to me. So that was one of the things that kind of led me to the discovery of complex PTSD. Also, PTSD is also personal. Um, I have a lot of family that are veterans and so it's something that uh, rises to your attention yeah and it inspired research into it and um, also just kind of a interpersonal understanding of how that affects people one of the uh, most interesting quotes that I think ever came across my desk as we were preparing for podcasts was the idea that if something so horrible can happen to you in one moment that it dramatically changes your life and your persona, your personality, then we as psychiatrists need to be looking for something that in one moment can do the opposite. I hope you find that. Yeah. <laughs> now, you uh, didn't mention what direction you're headed with your specialty at this point. Do you have any idea? Interested in psychiatry. Um, in high school, I, I thought I was going to be a neurologist. I, had a poster of the entire nervous system on my wall. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I was fascinated by all the peripheral nerves. And, uh, and then I did a master's in human anatomy. And I came home one day and didn't have the poster up anymore. But I was like, I know everything on this poster. So uh, you had mastered it. Yeah. <laughs> I Hold guess. On. So, so you're interested in psychiatry. Is, 
the next challenge. It's yeah. the integration of the nerves to the function of the nerves. Yeah, and I think that a big element of that is understanding why people are the way they are and, um, and how an understanding of kind of the biology and the anatomy can affect that and if there's ways to improve it or change people's lives if we can alter the course of their life, especially as we'll see with complex PTSD. Um, childhood traumas can affect that a lot and to be able to change the course of someone's lives I feel like is um, something that I aspire to do. Pretty cool. So. Pretty cool. Um, I was going to mention that most of the time when I have students that show up and say I want to go into psychiatry I get very nervous <laughs> and uh, I haven't been nervous with you. I've really enjoyed you know, what I've been able to do with you and uh, I think Ryan Brownman, who also went into psychiatry, was here for a short time. And uh, congratulations to Ryan, who texted me and let me know she matched. And uh, uh, a couple other people that have been here along the, the way. Uh, Matt really wanted to go into psychiatry. I think he'll uh, be in it. He matched as well, uh, he, although he decided ultimately to go into family practice. So we've had a number of people who have had that interest. And I've been surprised at what great students I've had coming out of Rocky Vista looking at psychiatry, I guess, is my point, my take-home point. On that note, um, how about if we get started with the high-yield portion of the podcast? Let's talk a little bit about the diagnosis of PTSD first, and then uh, the kinds of things that, sh the kinds of principles that will be tested on the shelf exam. Now, uh, Lexi, I think you were the person that prepared that. Does that sound yes, right? Yes, yes I am. So going off of the DSM-5 definition, it's pretty extensive, so I'll break it down in just to the big points that they brought up. Um, first, exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Presence of one or more intrusion symptoms associated with that event. Persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with that event beginning after the event. Um, negative alterations in cognitions and mood associations marked alterations in arousal and reactivity, and then clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or important areas of functioning. Um, and then along with that, just the timeline, it should be over a month. So those symptoms for more than a month. What is it if symptoms are less than a month? Well, now that you're putting me on the spot, I'm gonna doubt myself, but I'm gonna throw out adjustment disorder. Does that sound right? I don't remember. Close. <laughs> What so is what it? is it? Acute stress disorder. Acute stress, stress disorder. Okay. Thanks for some reason, for I couldn't get brief day. psychotic disorder out of my mind. So when I, I was, was on the spot, I was I was like, so uh, more than a month is PTSD. Yes. Less than a month is acute, acute stress, stress disorder. disorder. Okay. And those timelines are pretty important on the exam. Yes, they are. So that's definitely one thing that can clue you into PTSD. And then also, I think the biggest thing is just cluing into some big event that's leading to those symptoms. They're not mm -hmm. just randomly appearing or um, miscellaneous throughout the person's life. It's specifically after some event. So um, in my mind, I was always uh, sort of a caveman. <clears throat> and so I, I always felt like you had to have an exposure. Then you had to have reliving experiences and then you had to have some sort of change in your behavior associated with that. And if I could remember those three things, I felt like I got most of the questions right. You guys are nodding. That, that makes, sounds good. That, that makes great radio. Just going to tease you guys right now. <laughs> um, all right, so, so I think we're going to have a little bit more depth on PTSD and CPTSD as we go along. 
but I just want to reiterate then those kinds of key elements that you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, and then that that trauma has to be there and the timeline has to be there. Next question for you, and and I don't know that I know this very well, is there uh, a chronic PTSD diagnosis or a specifier if PTSD lasts a certain amount of time and it becomes chronic? Did you see anything along those lines? I did not see anything. It seems like there might be, but I can't remember myself. I can't. Uh, I usually have to review the the uh, criteria before I come to the podcast. And in this case, I was busy trying to wrap my head around what we're about to talk about next. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the next question, then, uh, Dave, we'll go ahead and, mm-hmm. and head over to you. You mentioned CPTSD versus PTSD, and and maybe for the ease of the podcast, I have the hardest time saying CPTSD because I want to say CBT. Right, so maybe we can just uh, complex, complex versus non-complex or something like that. Um, however, we want to uh, go about that. Okay. How did you come across complex PTSD? Where, where did you see this? Um, I actually am not sure. Um. <laughs> Very reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's been a while now, though. Um, so I would say that. Since that time, uh, especially yesterday, I've learned a lot more about it. Uh, One of the things was that it was first introduced as a diagnosis in 1992 by an American psychiatrist by the name of Judith uh, Lewis Herman, who titled the book Trauma and Recovery, the Aftermath of Violence from a Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, which kind of sounds like it spans a wide gamut. Um, Yeah, but I think PTSD spans a wide gamut and CPTSD has overlap with that trauma, right? The trauma has to be there for both. Yes. Okay, so so I think that was why. I, I think a lot of people kind of look back at uh, her work, if I understand what I read now, I didn't see her work, I saw her work referenced a couple of times, right? And, yeah. and I think a lot of people look at her definition of CPTSD or complex uh, uh, PTSD as sort of the, the start of all of this then. Tell me what was her definition of complex PTSD and why that was different than PTSD. Um, I haven't compared so much her definitions just because it has changed so much since then. But originally she described it as a disturbance of affect regulation, alterations of consciousness, disturbed self-perception, disturbed perception of the offender, relationship problems and changes in the value system, And then she actually came up with a therapeutic framework, which isn't completely elucidated in a lot of the literature. I think maybe you'd probably have to read the book to determine that. But she suggested security, remembering and grieving, and then reconnection. As the way of of treatment. Of treating. Okay. It it sounds like one of the criteria she's mentioning is, is something that we talked about in preparation for the podcast, which is this, uh, uh, DSM subdiagnosis or alternative diagnosis of dissociative PTSD. Was she talking about dissociative PTSD when she talked about alterations in consciousness? Alterations in consciousness would fall under dissociation as a component. Mm-hmm. And one of the addendums that happened in the DSM-5 was the addition of dissociation um, as a additional criteria. So tell me how that works, because I, I I don't know what you mean by an additional criteria. So it's not an additional diagnosis. So it wasn't included in DSM-4. Okay. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe in DSM-4, PTSD was considered an anxiety disorder, which it got reclassified with DSM-5. Two? 
um, uh, stress disorder. Interesting. So I didn't pick that up ever before today. And in fact, one of the things that stuck, stuck out to me as I was reading along, um, I, I think one of the challenges I had in trying to understand the difference between complex trauma or complex PTSD and PTSD was it seemed like there are more than one criteria, right? So, yeah. so I read one article, I can't remember if this was Caratzias, uh, I think K-R-A-T-Z-I-A-S, and this is an introduction to see uh, chronic PTSD, I think was uh, essentially the, the goal of the article. And one of the things that I think I understood from that article was that there is a difference between an anxiety disorder, fear disorder, and let's see, where are we, a stress disorder. Talk to me about that distinction between stress disorders and anxiety disorders. Um, my understanding is that anxiety ha can have sort of a more intrinsic component. Um, when I was looking at associations with other anxiety disorders, I noticed that there was um, one factor of the Factor V personality model, which is neuroticism, seems to be closely associated with developing anxiety-related disorders, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't seem to be the same case in PTSD. Um, I saw with some of the neurocognitive literature that you can develop PTSD in the absence of the biomarkers that we see, but if you have those markers in place, then you're more likely to develop PTSD in the face of a stressor. Okay. Um, and that relationship that they said was a G by E, G, X, E, sometimes. Uh, yeah, so gene by environment, yeah. Gene by environment, yeah. So, so, so I saw that stuff, and I think one of the other things that was challenging for me was I didn't necessarily see that discussion pop up in other places in the literature, the distinction between stress and anxiety. And, and one of the things I thought was important in that discussion, and, and again, I, I'm not sure I know this, it's what I think I read, um, that the stress, one of the things about PTSD is that the stressor may or may not be there, but it seems like in complex PTSD, the stressor may be ongoing. For example, you might have somebody in, uh, let's say, in uh, the Ukraine to take something that's very uh, germane to the moment, and uh, perhaps, Right now, they're being traumatized because the buildings around them are falling, their loved ones are being killed. Um, and then in three months, still may be, they still may be living in a war zone. They would have reliving experiences associated with the trauma because we're now past that month window. Um, and yet, the, the stressor is still ongoing. So they have PTSD plus an ongoing stressor. Was there anything in the literature that you read that seemed to make that a key definition of complex PTSD, or was that maybe somebody's additional comment on how this opens up the diagnosis? Help me know where this fits in the, in the discussion. Um, I would say that ongoing stressors seem to be more correlated with complex PTSD. The most correlated was childhood abuse. Um, part of that has to do with the fact that child uh, dynamics, there will be a caregiver, and it tends to be that caregiver that's perpetuating the abuse that leads to this tenuous relationship and a lack of distrust and authority figures and that type of thing, which where if you're having ongoing stress in, say, a war zone, there might not be that same dynamic. Um, and in some of the literature I saw was termed chronic PTSD, 
which is kind of a subtle distinction from complex PTSD. Um, and I wonder if some of those cases would be more fall under the diet, the definition of a chronic PTSD rather than complex PTSD. Um, and what my perusing of the literature led me to suggest is that this would be more common in someone that was say, um, involved in sex trafficking or they were put in a situation where they had total loss of control um, for an ongoing period of time. So, so I do think that if you're in a war zone and it's still going on, you would yeah. probably still meet that because of the ongoing loss of control. But I think your point is not lost, and I thought it was very interesting. You, you essentially, for a moment there, referenced the McLean and Gallup article from 2003 that you shared with me, uh -huh. which, which I think was originally set up to try and... Um, to try and help make the difference clear to clinicians between borderline personality disorder and chronic uh, PTSD, right? Yeah. And, and the fascinating study, they got a convenience group. I thought that was uh, interesting language. They put up flyers, and whoever answered the flyers and answered those uh, and met criteria, um, they, they divided into two different groups of, on how they were traumatized. The early trauma group were people who on average started being traumatized at age five uh, sexually and the late onset trauma group uh, started being uh, traumatized at age 15 and a half. I was expecting a, a much later number for both of those. Those yeah. were both, uh, I mean, trauma is always heartbreaking and those numbers seem to be even more heartbreaking to me, right? Um, and, and so they did uh, something called, and I had a lot of heartburn about this name, by the way, the revised diagnostic interview for borderlines, right? I think one of the things that if you've listened to me, uh, you'll hear me periodically correct somebody and say they have borderline personality disorder rather than they are borderline or borderlines are X, Y, and Z. I'll say, um, you mean people who have borderline personality disorder, right? You'll hear me say that and I was surprised to see a, a tool that. I think reading that literature too, it makes it harder to break that habit as you're reading more and more, and you almost pick it up subconsciously. Yeah. They used a structured interview for uh, disorders of extreme stress, which I thought was interesting for this uh, chronic PTSD. And then I, it looks like they tried to break this down into developmental periods, so they looked at trauma based on the period of time within somebody's life that they had the trauma. And I think they tried to make some, uh, give some sort of data or information to us about the way they collected the data to try and understand when da when trauma happened and and the role it might have had in development, but I think I think the take home point was one that you were trying to accentuate a few minutes ago, and that is that generally speaking, people who had chronic PTSD versus uh, so early abuse was notable for both increased complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder. And that if you had somebody who had chronic PTSD, most of the time it was intrafamiliar, intrafamilial uh, abuse, like 75% uh, versus about 40%. It was not a single incident. There were 0% of the early trauma and complex, I'm sorry, there was 0% of the complex PTSD people by their criteria, who were only traumatized one time, zero, yeah, and versus forty-one percent of the adolescents, and then uh, the other thing that I thought was 
incredibly remarkable, almost as remarkable as 0% were only traumatized one in that uh, chron uh, complex PTSD. Nearly 97% of the patients with complex PTSD were victims later, so they were re-victimized, right? And it looks like if you have one parent that's able to pay attention, the odds of you being re-victimized or at least having chronic PTSD is much lower. And I assume that's because one parent in the game seems to help prevent that kind of re-victimization or continuous victimization. Yeah. So, so I was impressed by those numbers. Again, clearly problems with the, the data set, who they chose people from, the, the diagnostic interviews that they had left me a little bit skeptical about whether it was the best possible tools. But at the end of the day, those numbers were fairly compelling. It wasn't close with bad tools. It was far, far apart with probably reasonable tools. So, so I was impressed by that. And, and I think that speaks to that chronic nature of ongoing trauma that you're referring to for complex PTSD. If the person that abuses you matters, and I think we read some stuff that spoke to that, if the situation that you're abused within matters, if the time in your life matters, and if the chronicity matters, if I understand correctly, mm -hmm. that kind of becomes the building block for uh, complex PTSD, which now consists of something that looks more like a personality than PTSD does, right? There's a personality change that seems to be durable. Talk to me about the thinking that the people who built the ICD had as they moved into complex PTSD. And I think there's a role for the World Health Organization here. I'd like you to kind of tell me, tell me that story. Okay. So <clears throat> PTSD, as it was reclassified to um, the DSM-5, I had touched on previously that um, dissociation was kind of added as an element. One of the problematic issues with that is that we essentially had four clusters um, in PTSD with 20 different symptoms, um, which led to the possibility that you could have PTSD with 636,120 permutations is the, the figure that I read. Did you do the math on that? Or Okay, you read that. I actually had to go back and, and do factorials and, and see if that's how they arrived at that number. But I didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, to be honest. Um, um, but wait, Hold on, can you repeat what you just... <laughs> I, I, I want... I, not because I doubt you, uh -huh. and not because I didn't hear it. Yeah. Um, but can you repeat that sentence so that I can make fun of you more later? <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, there's at least 10,000 different possible ways... To be, to be diagnosed with PTSD. Um, and I feel like the World Health Organization has moved away from what would be considered more rigid criteria in the DSM. And so they simply took the PTSD, three symptomatic clusters, and added three criteria. And it's important to note that um, CPTSD, or complex PTSD rather, is it's recognized by the World Health Organization under ICD-11, it's recognized by the Veteran Affairs Department, it's recognized by the NHS, which is... National Health Service in Great Britain, okay. And also Australia, which is the HAD. Um, and then they use a screening tool called the ITQ-5 that screens for both PTSD and complex PTSD. And the three additional clusters that they added are affective, dysregulation, negative self-concept, and disturbances in relationships. And okay. I, so I'm, I'm going to stop for just yeah. a second to make sure that 
this part is really clear. So I, I want to make sure I understand this. The first cluster is the PTSD cluster, which is the um, re-experiencing of trauma in the here and now, uh -huh. avoidance of traumatic reminders, and then a persistent sense of a current threat. And that follows trauma, right? So you have to have trauma, you have to have the three clusters, and, and that takes the permutation of 10,000, whatever, uh, 100,000 potential combinations down to this more manageable criteria that's more usable, potentially. Which they say is more treatable. And more treatable. So more diagnostic, uh, more easily used to diagnose and then more easily conceptualized for treatment. Yeah. And okay. They also are using this criteria in like third world countries and places where people have been abused. Um, I know like Africa was a big place where they had done some of the research too and found like it was more applicable or more easily to use. And, and that's just the PTSD, those factors. And then if you add what are called the DSO criteria, and what does DSO stand for again? I wrote it down. Um, um, disturbance and self-regulation. Or organization. Organization. Yeah, that makes more sense than regulation. <laughs> so it's almost like a proxy for dissociation. Okay. So they've added in part dissociation to that. Although I feel like it sounds a little bit like adding borderline personality, personality disorder to PTSD. Yeah. And that has been a common criticism in an area of debate over the past two decades is, is this just PTSD with borderline traits or comorbid borderline personality disorder? Um, and so I wanted to kind of address line by line why there is a distinction. So in terms of... That's great because I had this question for you. <laughs> I want to tell you this question I wrote down just for you. If everything is stressful for somebody that has borderline personality disorder, mm -hmm. then how can you possibly separate uh, complex trauma out from borderline personality disorder? Does that make sense? So, so if, if I were to have borderline personality disorder and my neighbor's dog getting run over gives me the worst day of my life, it feels like. Yeah. Um, how can somebody who goes through trauma that has borderline personality disorder not have reliving, not have all those symptoms. So so I am very fascinated to hear how you make the distinction between the two. And I would hypothesize if someone has borderline personality disorder, they would be more susceptible to experiencing PTSD possibly. Oh sure, you're gonna make good answers. <laughs> so <laughs> very quickly in fact. <laughs> and in terms of risk factors, of course, uh, childhood neglect and abuse are a risk factor, uh, it appears, in borderline personality disorder. And also, borderline personality patients are six times more likely to develop the disorder if they have a first-degree relative with borderline personality disorder. Which leads me to ask the question, is it the fact that there's a genetic component and it's carried on, or is there a component that is sort of a, a social, social component that's uh, learned, possibly learned behaviors or... Um, Melody, I'm going to throw one more out Attachment there. Attachment disorder. Is there a, a generational epigenetic factor? That's an interesting question because in the articles, they talked about epigenetics, but they said considering that we don't even have the genetics tied down yet and the fact that uh, this is something that presents differently in people, it's something that needs further research, but there was no direct answer. There was one place where I thought I saw generational epigenetics, and that is um, one of the articles that you shared with me made a comment about a study that had been done in 
survivors of the Holocaust. Yes. And those survivors of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. their children had lower um, cortisol levels mm -hmm. than was generally the case. And those were also people that had potentially had traumatic events and did not develop PTSD, but there seemed to be this hint in the article that you uh, gave me that perhaps there's some sort of epigenetic generational effect of the trauma on the parents to the children. Right. Yes, I remember that. I just wasn't sure since it was a it wasn't a given. Right. Um, that that article was interesting because it also talked about just the PTSD symptoms in those Auschwitz survivors. But yeah. um, I think we could get into that later. Or? Yeah, we can jump, or if you want to throw more out now, because I think sure. yeah. So so let's let's go ahead and tackle the two things you just talked about: um, environment versus genetics. If you want, in this spot, let's go ahead and pick those up. Well. And I would, I feel like you probably touched on borderline personality disorder to a greater extent in other podcasts. Yeah. And a lot of the good research that I wanted to see was behind a paywall when it specifically <laughs> related to borderline. But to borderline personality disorder? Borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Maybe it'd be better to refocus kind of on the distinctions. Let, okay. Let's go back to the distinctions and pick up the bio, bio, okay. biology a little bit later. Um, so, in terms of self image in borderline personality disorder, Patients will report that they are vacillating between a highly positive and a highly negative self-symptoms or affect. And in complex PTSD, it's a persistently negative. Um, so unstable personality perception versus, in fact, I think that's negative. versus sta stable negative. Yeah. And I think that's the language for borderline personality disorder and the criteria is unstable sense of self, right? And seems, then, seems familiar. Could have been a three or a four. It's, a, it's kind of a common theme if I could create one. I would say is uh, sort of instability in all of the elements seems to be a common theme. Versus stability that is negative in, um, in complex PTSD. For, yeah, for the most part. In, okay. So interpersonal relationships, borderline personality disorder is associated with rapid engagement followed by ups and downs or idealization and devaluization of relationships, especially in the face of stress. So um, I think, and I might be misquoting, there's a book on borderline personality disorder called I Love You, Get Away From Me, or... Too Far, Too Close, Too Far, Too Close. I've, I've heard it described that yeah. way as well. Whereas in complex PTSD, I think you're about to make the case that there's something different. There's difficulty maintaining relationships during periods of conflict or high emotion where someone with complex PTSD would tend to um, sort of barricade or isolate themselves, for lack of a better term, so they are... At, not at risk of undergoing re-traumatization, so it's so, like a self-protecting. So emotionally withdrawn from relationships, they're they're emotionally yeah. barricaded from relationships, as opposed to I'm trying to make it work. Nope, too close, too far. I'm wait. Okay, I'm back. Nope, I'm away. You're all good. You're all bad. Maybe that like a turtle thing. shell or something that is saying I don't want this to happen. But there also does seem to be a component where um, the relationship that you developed with your caregiver gets repeated through romantic relationships where you find someone who is likely to re-traumatize and abuse you. Okay. Any other differences or distinctions? Suicide and self-harm. So both populations will exhibit higher levels of self-harm and suicide. But when you compare the two, in borderline personality disorder, suicidal tendencies are often much higher and self-harming behavior is much higher and it is also a therapeutic, or I should say a therapeutic goal, and it's also part of the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder, which is not an element of complex PTSD. Okay. Uh, any other 
distinctions? Um, I believe dissociation might exist in borderline personality disorder. Say it again. Does dissociation is that an element of borderline personality? I I it, read it that can happen, I believe. it can lead to self harming events. Um, or right. is there is a uh, there's completely separate dissociative dis, uh, identity disorder, and I think the diagnostic name of that has changed in the five. And I have the toughest time remembering all of the name changes. Um, but yeah, you can we we see that in our patients that have been traumatized, regardless of the diagnosis, right? And and so yes, uh, uh, to quote one study, they put dissociation can be highly impairing with some studies demonstrating that higher levels of dissociation are associated with increased suicidal ideation, self-injury, and suicide attempts. So in the case of um, complex PTSD, the way that the ICD has it set up, what, what I, th I think I'm hearing you say is that borderline personality disorder tends to be more problematic for the self-harm and suicidality. However, if you have the escalation of dissociation within complex trauma or complex PTSD, then that risk might that risk assessment may change somewhat. Is that a fair summary? Uh, I would agree. Okay, good. I heard it then. <laughs> uh, what else? Other ways to distinguish between borderline personality disorder and complex PTSD? Yeah, I feel like the these aren't so much the strict criteria but possibly the elements that we had previously talked about in terms of gathering a history about your patient and trying to determine have they undergone this prolonged abuse history. And in reading the literature, I was um, found that a child isn't going to tell you they've been abused. So it's kind of up to uh, physicians to be able to identify signs of abuse in their patient or to be really perceptive about things that they aren't telling you necessarily. And that might help you to distinguish or put this on your radar, possibly. And that's also very tough because I think we also have plenty of examples of people who believed trauma was there, and it might not have been. That is, a perceptive physician seems to pick things up. The family practice docs that track that kind of stuff and pick things up and then end up being right so often, they seem like witches to me. Is that the right word? They just like divine stuff that I, I can't. As you notice from the podcast, to me, I try to slavishly follow the data, right? To, to be uh, unable to see outside of what is exactly in front of me and to try and divine something based on what you're observing is scary to me. And yet... Well, I would argue that you, you're capable of doing that a lot with your own patients and to have insight that... Um, no one else can necessarily see how you arrived at those conclusions, but through that experience and information gathering that's happening subconsciously, you're able to see the things that others don't see. I think you just called me out. I think he just complimented you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very nice compliment. And, and, and complimented me. Thank you very much. Um, so, so to try and hasten past that, mm -hmm. um, complex trauma, complex, not trauma, complex PTSD. Do we have any sense on what kind of the the if we agree on these ICD criteria? Because I think there's some other stuff out there that that we could spend a lot of time in the weeds on, right? If we agree on these this set of criteria, does it give us any prognostic information? Do we know what the outcome is for somebody that has complex PTSD? Uh, 
at this point. And I feel like that's difficult, and I would attribute it personally to the fact that it isn't classified under the DSM currently. Okay. Um, and therefore, a lot of the research that we have um, doesn't have a consistent base. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we're going to get into that even a little bit more. Um, I want to also ask about one other thing. One of the, th the ideas that I was struck by was that PTSD might be a mental illness. Um, complex PTSD might be a personality disorder or be a mental illness that leads to a personality change. The phrase enduring personality uh, change after catastrophic events, E-P-C-A-C-E. Did you um, find anything else other than the one article that mentioned that, that spoke to that or that gave you more insight into that? No, not not specifically. Okay. Um, and, and part of why I feel like it's difficult to suss some of this out is the fact that it's only been in consciousness for 20-ish years. years. And yeah. one of the uh, researchers, I felt, put it very eloquently. He said, complex presentations are often excluded from studies because they do not fit neatly into the simple nosological categorizations required for research power. This means the most severe disorders are not studied adequately and patients most affected by early trauma are often not recognized by services, both historically and currently at the individual as well as societal level. So dissociation from the acknowledgement of the severe impact of child severe impact of childhood abuse on the developing brain leads to inadequate provision of services. Assimilation into treatment models of the emerging affective neuroscience of adverse experience could help to redress the balance by shifting the focus from top-down regulation to bottom-up body-based processing. And they also went on to say, if CBT and, or DBT were effective for 100% of uh, patients with complex trauma sequela, there would be no need for additional therapeutic approaches. So part of why, you know, why, why we care about complex PTSD would be because it doesn't respond to um, any of the things that we would throw at PTSD or dialectic or, um, or borderline, borderline per personality disorder. So, so you had a couple of treatment-related articles, I think. Yeah. I, I want to maybe get to those in a few minutes. I, I want to talk about the biology of PTSD. I think we've made the case that there is a belief that there's a, a presentational difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. But I, I want to I dive in a little bit into the biology of PTSD, the things that we think we know. Now, Melody, you, you, you might have had as tough a, a task on this as Dave did. Yeah, it was it wasn't easy, but it was fun, and it was there was a lot of interesting thing to learn, to, a lot of interesting things to learn. So I'm a little excited to talk about it. I'm always intrigued about the way that students go into the literature with some ideas about what they'll find, and then the journey that they have in the literature. Do you mind taking just a moment to tell me about the journey you had on this on this literature dive? Yeah. So. A little bit kind of how you said I came in with this idea of okay what are the structural changes that we find I'm sure there's stuff we've seen on imaging let me just go look that up and um, that was not exactly the path it went so there are some structural changes that are seen consistently but they also different studies see slightly different results um, and nothing is definitive but more so than that there's a lot more than just the 
neuroanatomic changes. There's also changes in circuitry. There's changes in synapses. Um, there's changes in certain hormones, including thyroid hormone, which was interesting to me. Um, and there's things, the epigenetics was something I kind of wanted to dive into. Didn't get too far into that because I got a little caught up in just the changes in a regular or in the individual who's experienced PTSD. And um, I think there's a lot there and it sounds like there's a lot more research to be done. So it's something that will be interesting to see how it concludes. All right, I'm going to throw a few things at you and yes. see if you'll give me your thoughts on those. Dave, I think you've also done a lot of research that looks at some of these same things in a different way. And Lexi, I think you have also kind of looked through some of this. So I want you all to feel free to jump in. So I'm going to say, I'm just going to say one thing and I'll just kind of get your thoughts. Amino acid based pathology. So this was interesting. This came up with the way I looked at the research, it was kind of split into three sections. There was the neuroanatomy or the neural circuitry. And then the other two were kind of the um, endocrine, the endocrine changes that you find, and then the chemical changes. And so this falls more under the topic of chemical changes. So there's changes in different chemicals, but specifically about the amino acids that you brought up. One of the main ones that it talked about was GABA. And so GABA is naturally um, an inhibitory neuron, and they it's been shown that it has a lot of anxiolytic effects, so essentially decreasing anxiety effects. And um, it, seemed to, it's, it seems to dampen the response to stress. And what was interesting was that they've noted that in patients with PTSD, if you give GABA or if you increase that GABA concentration, which is something that you might do with benzos, it could seem to help those patients. Um, but the frustrating part was there was also studies that says benzodiazepines seem to have no effect on patients. So it's um, something that needs a little more research. So if I understand what you're saying, it's sort of like everything with GABA. It's involved, but it's complicated. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Summed it up very succinctly. Anything anybody else wants to add to that? Yeah, I, I haven't heard of uh, benzos being effective. Yeah, in fact, I think we're going to come to that in treatment. It might even be that benzos are harmful. Right. That's, I think mm -hmm. that's kind of what we, we, we this, this podcast really wasn't focused on treatment of uh, either chronic PTSD, I'm sorry, either complex PTSD or PTSD very much other than some, some of the things we picked up along the way, right? Um, but rather a discussion about the biology and the differences that we see in PTSD. Uh, one of those significant differences being complex PTSD that we think is out there. Uh, next one, monoamine-based pathology. Um, well, there's quite a few things with that. I'm assuming you want me to go into kind of the dopaminergic and all of that. Is that where you're... Uh, I threw out the question. You do whatever you okay, want. Okay, I, I will... But, by the way, I wish you could all see the smile that Melody has. <laughs> this is one of the coolest things about podcasts is when you see students who... who have an experience going into the literature that affects how they think about medicine. And I think that's the smile that I'm seeing. That was a very beautiful way of describing the smile. It's just, I was actually a neuroscience major in undergraduate, and I think it's fascinating and it's very complex and there's so much to learn. So researching this topic was difficult, but it was nostalgic and it was fun. It looks like it was rewarding as well. It was very rewarding. So um, monoamine. Yeah, so I think the dopamine pathway, it's something that's come up in 
a lot of different things. It's tied up and it is relevant in this situation as well. Um, there are different pathways in the brain that seem to affect dopamine, that seem to respond to dopamine. And again, similar to a lot of the other research that I found, um, it seems that catecholamines in general have an effect, but it's not consistent. So dopamine has been implicated in fear conditioning, but not consistently. And it, it is shown that maybe SSRIs are part of our treatment for it, which is norepinephrine and epinephrine, and yet maybe they're not as effective. Um, so once again, here are two sides of the story. I do think, I'm going to put my two cents on the monoamine pathology. First of all, I think there are, well, I'll get into that part in a minute. I think that there is an FDA approval for sertraline and I think one other SSRI for treatment of PTSD. And I think there's also a lot of negative trials for the SSRI. So not every SSRI seems to have benefit in treatment of PTSD. And I thought that was fascinating when I first learned that about 15 years ago. Somebody also made the comment to me that if you took, um, if you separated the effect of sertraline on men and sertraline on women and looked at the PTSD outcomes, men would have no benefit and that most of the benefit would be in women. And I thought that was also very fascinating when I heard that. Now, I, I haven't been able to independently verify that yet, but it's, uh, I think that so many um, SSRIs did not have outcomes that gave them the FDA approval for PTSD as notable, right? So it really is a couple of SSRIs. Isn't there one SNRI that has FDA approval? I don't, rem I don't remember. Um, I, I know that sertraline has the FDA approval. I thought it was Cymbalta, but I could be wrong. It may. It may. I, it seemed like the other SSRI might have been uh, Paxil. Paroxetine. Again, I don't remember. The one I do remember yeah. very clearly is sertraline. If, if one of you looks that up before the end of the podcast, we'll, we'll have that data for us, rather than relying on my memory for something that I'm not very reliable at. Uh, next thing I want to throw out there, fear extinction. Okay, so this one, I'm hoping you would be interested. I think this one would hopefully catch your interest. Great big circle. But, uh, that one's very interesting. <laughs> to me. Okay, um, so hopefully I do the topic justice. But I thought there were some really interesting studies about PTSD and fear conditioning and extinction. Um, so basically what the study authors came to the conclusion and the way they described it was that PTSD isn't necessarily just an over-response to fear but it's more a difficulty in distinguishing between fearful conditions um, compared to safe conditions and safe environments. And they said that PTSD is associated with um, kind of three deficits. So there's a deficit in fear extinction. There's also an increased generalization of fear. And most importantly, kind of what I said, there's a negative bias of viewing threat from neutral stimuli. So even in a safe environment, they might feel that they are in danger or he or she might feel that he's in he or she is in danger. And it seems that one thing that I thought was really interesting in that same study was it seems that all individuals, at least what they suggested, are susceptible to developing PTSD if the trauma load is high enough for these reasons. So they actually um, spoke about Auschwitz, Auschwitz survivors and they said that about 80% had intrusive recollection of their experiences, 90% had recurrent nightmares, and 100% had sleep disturbances. So it seems that 
if that they called it the trauma load is high enough, you could start to experience and have PTSD, and that relates to a deficit in fear extinction and a difficulty distinguishing between fear and safety. Did you have anything to add to that, either of the two of you? I know that we had um, talked previously about the Auschwitz study in kind of... Um, was it hypermethylation that had occurred in terms of epigenetic changes? With the cortisol? Um, or with the, or is that, are you talking about the... I think uh, cortisol is... You, you might be talking about here. the 5-HTT PLR. I could speak to that as well. Um, but one thing I was going to say in terms of epigenicity is that there was a study done on U.S. military service members deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq with um, a line one, which is long interspersed element DNA sequence that makes up 17% of the human genome. It was found to be hypermethylated among controls and, hypermeth and hypomethylated post-deployment among participants with PTSD. So those um, sequences then becoming genetically active when compared with pre-deployment measurements suggesting epigenetic changes. So that's kind of interesting to me because the next thing I was going to throw out was uh, animal models, transient versus chronic. Mm -hmm. There was a surprising little bit of data that I came across, and that is that uh, it looks like our immediate response to trauma is an improved ability to think, better cognitive processing, like kind of this increased sense of awareness that didn't get into something that was pathological. So it, even if I understood correctly, the animal models showed an improvement in neuronal function immediately after trauma. Talk to me about that, either anybody that wants to tackle that one. Well, it does make me think of the, there's a model for performance and a certain amount of anxiety relative to that performance. So if you are you're performing and you are sort of in this low energy state where you've you've got no anxiety about it, you don't perform as well as if you had some that kind of... Some anxiety. And if you have too much, then you're so agitated that you can't really focus, right? But I don't know if that's quite the same concept. I don't know if it is either, but I was wondering as you were talking about hypermethylation of mm -hmm. soldiers, so the buildup to be deployed, um, there, there is a pretty significant buildup to that. There's, uh, if I remember right, four to six months where you're preparing to go overseas. That involves different kinds of activities that uh, are either fitness or capacity to be there, unit equipment, all of those kinds of things lead into that buildup. And so there's that period of anticipation that is stressful. Um, and, and we've talked a little bit about stress and fear, but it, it made me wonder about hypermethylation being sort of that activation of neuronal, of, neural stimuli, or I'm sorry, of animal models where there's uh, apparently positive changes in neurons that precede chronic trauma, which then leads to these deleterious effects in the neurons. Did I read that right, or am I imagining stuff? You, you guys are looking at me like maybe uh, no, imagining... But I think you bring up a good point that could potentially confound some of the data, is if there is that state where people are highly anxious thinking about deployment, that could potentially be a stressful enough event that it's causing epigenetic changes possibly. Um, another segment that they looked at was called ALU, which is a repetitive DNA sequence that was also hypermethylated pre-deployment. Um, and participants who were eventually diagnosed with PTSD, when compared with controls, they showed that the methylation status of line one and ALU DNA 
um, served as a marker of susceptibility. So it was a potential biomarker, and obviously at this point we're not using any biomarkers for PTSD treatment, but it's something that looks like a hopeful avenue. One of the things I like about those two biomarkers, so the article that uh, you gave me that looked at biomarkers, I thought probably missed the point of a biomarker from my uh, never so humble perspective, right? Or ever so humble, whatever it is, right? Um, because I thought some of those biomarkers that they listed were biological risk factors and not biomarkers, right? So a biomarker in its truest sense would be one that uh, might be diagnostic and would also give us information that the uh, syndrome is recovering in response to treatment, right? So, so if I understand correctly, um, we would want to know if that biomarker not only started off at the appropriate level for the situation, but then the change in the biomarker co corresponded to the trauma, right? So the ALU and the line, is it line one? Line one. Yeah, so if those were, quote, normal, pre-morbidly, trauma happens, those biomarkers change in response to the trauma and correspond to the changes in function, the reliving experiences and so forth, and then as you're able to address those through the treatments that are available, you saw that biomarker recover. That would be a, a biomarker that's helpful in treatment, right? And I think that's the, the goal of the NIH's biomarker programs. Yeah, I think that would be kind of a, a gold standard aspiration in the field of psychiatry if something yeah. like that existed. Yeah, we, we still don't have any, as far as I know, really great biomarkers. I do think there were a few other biomarkers that that article listed. I think uh, CRH. Um, CR CRH binding or something along those lines. So I know that um, in terms of effects, that um, decreased cortisol reactivity to an experimental stressor uh, was found to predict development of PTSD. And individuals with PTSD had elevation of cortisol and CRH in CSF when compared to healthy controls. Um, to me, that just signals that they're having a, a stress response and obviously not going to be very specific and or sensitive for that matter. And, cases where if someone's exposed to a stressor, but it's just a higher relativity, so I'm not sure if they would use that as a way of... In other words, if, if I hear what you're saying is everybody's going to have a change in cortisol, and that change will make it hard to know who's having a the, the relatively lower change yeah, in cortisol. Because I can imagine you're ordering cortisol levels on someone, and then are you interpreting it's this much out of the reference range, and therefore... I can't see it being used kind of clearly. Yeah, I'm not sure that it has met criteria for that, even though there's a lot of evidence that the, the stronger that response, the more likely you are to develop the condition. I think maybe I'll summarize a couple of the things that kind of crossed my mind with biomarkers. It, it seems like there are a lot of genetic flags that are popping up, right? So I think perhaps pituitary adenylate cyclase activating polypeptide might fit within the idea of amino acid-based pathologies, mm -hmm. right? But it wasn't clear to me that we fully elucidated that pathway yet. I think uh, the 5-HTTPLR has some data in depression. I think it's fairly inconsistent in depression, but it looks like there's some data about potentially methylating that or other variants of that gene that might be associated with uh, at least PTSD. I think there's some other things about CRH receptors, the FKB. P5 gene, right? There are a lot of these genetic kind of things that are out there. And I think the challenge with it is I'm, I'm not sure that we had the time or the focus to really go a lot further into that other than say lots of stuff like this. Yeah, and, and associations. 
Lots of associations, yeah. Um, I'm going to throw out a couple of other uh, comments that I'd like you to, to respond to that still, I think, are in the biology. Um, age of trauma. Well, this one, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but it seemed like one thing that I found interesting was patients who had experienced childhood trauma, which kind of ties into what you'd mentioned earlier, um, were more susceptible to actually developing PTSD. And one specific study looked at um, Vietnam veterans, and they found that Vietnam vets who had experienced childhood trauma or adversity had a much higher increased rate of developing PTSD compared to veterans who hadn't. Um, and I thought that was interesting because normally we think of children as resilient and sometimes we tend to underestimate the effect that trauma could have on children and we could see it um, pop up later and show up in PTSD. One of the things that I was surprised by, I did some of my training at uh, the VA in Houston. There is a, a separate uh, PTSD group. I think there were about 10 psychiatrists that were only in the PTSD section of that group. There might have been 16 numbers uh, from 20 years ago. Uh, I probably am making them up as much as I remember them at this point. I remember it being a large group of psychiatrists, of so very talented people that I was fortunate enough to work with. And one of the things that stuck out uh, to me over time was this. Almost everybody that I worked with either there or when I was deployed to Iraq and that had symptoms of PTSD, I was astounded by how many of those people had trauma as children as well. And, and the, the, of course the challenge I have is that's not a study, right? That doesn't compare controls versus quote uh, normals and, or versus, I'm sorry, not, not normals, controls versus um, impacted group. Um, but, but I was struck by reading similar data to what you just mentioned and how often that seemed to kind of show up, that pattern felt like it was the rule, not the exception. Right, and it was, it was a little painful because it's also seen in, um, there was an intimate, vi intimate partner violence article which actually talked about s complex PTSD specifically and how it's more commonly diagnosed than PTSD. And it also mentioned that notably just a correlation isn't causation, but we did note that a lot of these women had childhood trauma and now have developed complex PTSD as a result of their intimate partner violence in their adult age. So it, it's, not, it's not just in specific situations. It does, like you said, pop up again and again. Yeah. Stage of life, which is slightly different than age. Wow, that's annoying. <laughs> Sorry to everybody that heard my computer chime. Stage of eight life. Anybody find anything that spoke to that? I um, didn't in particular. Okay. I'm not sure I understood that. It was pointed out in one of the articles. How about type of stress? Dave, I know that you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Yeah. I think we've alluded to this in a lot of different ways, but I want to maybe tackle it as its own sort of thing for a moment. Any comments that either of the, either of the three of you, any of the three of you have? Uh, kind of as a message that I was able to suss out of the research on complex PTSD. Um, it did seem like sexual trauma was more strongly associated with it, but I can't put supreme confidence in that finding. 
um, just because I was only able to find one review and meta-analysis of the data on complex PTSD treatment. Um, but that was one of the sort of repeat findings is any type of physical violence or, or sexual violence probably had a greater association, but I would posit that statement by saying that more research is needed in this area. I would agree. I found a similar, um, it was just mentioned in an article that people who experienced both physical and emotional trauma tended to develop PTSD at higher rates than someone who experienced just emotional trauma. Um, but again, this wasn't a definitive statement or a controlled trial, so I definitely agree that more research is needed into it, but something to consider. One of the things I've taught my students that I don't know is data-driven, but seems to be something that makes sense. Uh, be careful with people that say those kinds of things, by the way, so take this with a huge <laughs> grain of salt, is that it's important to think about what reliving implies, right? So if you have somebody that has trauma that's associated with uh, being in a war zone where tracer fire was used as they drive through uh, usually um, opposite direction highways, they have the reflectors on the opposite sides of the road, right? Those apparently look a lot like tracer fire. If you're somebody that experienced mortars, sounds that repeat mortar sounds are going to be more uh, important. Some people have talked about backfires uh, duplicating that sound. I think with current cars, backfire is fairly rare. But when I hear machinery that drops like the bucket on a front end loader, to me that sounds a lot like this the sound of mortars falling. Now whether it is or that's just my association, I don't know, right? But uh, we had a number of mortars that fell on us in, in one of the bases and I was struck by what sounded like that metallic clank, right? Um, so think about the type of trauma because it will have important implications for the type of reliving experiences and the type of avoidance that somebody will have. Now maybe that's just a common sense thing and it shouldn't be something that's so you know, profound, but I think it's worth considering. I also wanted to add this uh, set of um, words, inescapable, uncontrollable, unpredictable, repeated. Did anybody read that set of words in any of the articles they had? Okay, you guys probably all read it and I just made it seem more important to me. Uh, the article that, one of the articles that we read suggested that that is part of what leads to the threat paradigm. All right, now you're nodding your head. So tell me <laughs> about threat paradigm. Right. Um, well, the reason I kind of was a deer in headlights at that moment was because those are words that popped up repeatedly in multiple places. So I wasn't kind of sure um, who specifically that was towards. <laughs> <laughs> um, but <laughs> so, so what you're saying is if I only saw them once, I didn't do a very good job with my reading. <laughs> That was not what I was implying. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Stressing me out. Um, <laughs> Melody, please don't be stressed out. You're doing such a great job. Um, ooh, is she turning red? I'm turning red. There it is. <laughs> Still smiling, though. Um, so it did pop up specifically with those words threat paradigm. And what struck out to me about the threat paradigm was that it said there are certain biophysical vulnerabilities that seem to have a sustained threat paradigm. And so I'll kind of qualify further what that means. Those biosocial vulnerabilities that it listed included female sex, history of early life stress, kind of what we talked about with age, um, and predisposing neuronal disturbances, which um, 
is a little more trickier to get into, but these increased the risk for fear-related disturbances, and that led to what the um, authors called a sustained threat paradigm, and what that caused was a prolonged stress response following these traumatic events. So if you were to put it in like the caveman version for me, how so would you put that in seven words? Um, seven words. That's a very specific number. Um, okay, you can have this many as you okay, want. But, but the caveman version for me. The caveman version is certain populations are more likely to be stressed for a longer time, and that could be bad. <laughs> okay, and the populations that are more likely to be stressed are the people that go into that threat paradigm and stay there. Exactly. And, and so these are some of those risk factors for that threat mm -hmm. paradigm, which is the type of trauma, you added onto that some, I think, age factors and mm -hmm. some gender factors and maybe some genetic factors. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So the, the threat paradigm, how does that then fit into PTSD? Well, I think it fits in a little bit earlier what I talked about with the fear extinction. I think that ties in because we talked about how PTSD might be deficits in fear extent, ex, extinction, English, um, as well as an overgeneralization of fear. And that it seems to tie in with the same concept of not only are you having difficulty extincting your fear and it's progressing for a longer period of time, it's prolonged. And naturally, in that high-stress situation that lasts for a long time, that kind of seems to sound like PTSD. I like it. <laughs> All right, the next uh, phrase I'm going to throw out is SADS versus RADS. <laughs> you're, you're giggling over there. And, and just so you guys know what I'm talking about, it's S-A-A-D-S versus R-A-A-D-S. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> this one honestly was a tough concept for me. I'm going to just be completely real about it and I think you'll have things to add that I probably didn't um, pick up on as I was reading but I'll try to do my best. So SAAD was what they um, referred to for slow acting antidepressants so sad um, and then the other one I'm trying to what was it? I think it was rapid acting antidepressants yes, so I, yeah. I, I've never heard this phrase before by the way I, just, just if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> That was the thing. I It must have just, as I was reading, I didn't notice that it had broken it down, slow-acting antidepressants. And I was like, what is sad? That is... <laughs> and yes, so it was a difficult phrase for me. And to be honest, um, maybe I'm just overgeneralizing this and you could do a better job of explaining it. But it um, in this article's context, when it was talking about it, ultimately it made the point that even though we tend to use antidepressants, and we talked about how some of them are um, FDA-approved, Unfortunately, the authors didn't find that it really helped with PTSD symptoms. I, I th I, now, I, I think they felt like it was one of the helpful treatments, but we still don't have a home run. Yeah. And I think the other point that they made was it just takes so long to see the benefit from these. Right. And, and I think they were trying to contrast that with something that they hope is helpful, which is the use of ketamine. Mm -hmm. uh, ketamine has shown to be at least, okay, so I, we had a, podcast on ketamine we dogged on it the whole podcast i think my hope is that the ketamine infusions that you see done in the emergency room there might be more data for that for having a very rapid effect onset on suicidality and potentially depression and i'm not entirely convinced that the uh, nasal insufflation 
has that same kind of rapid onset, which is what we were hoping for when we went for the nasal ins when J and J went for the nasal insufflation. And I think what they're saying here is maybe there's some very early data with the rapid acting antidepressant data, and I think they referenced ketamine in that. Um, but I'm not. I didn't see strong data for ketamine being um, an answer yet. I don't know if anybody else did. It came up, I think it might have been in a different article, it came up, it said they're hopeful that it will have a, um, it will have an effect, but like you said, kind of, it needs more, um, more data and just time to see how it goes. It's hard to separate out um, the neuroanatomy from the treatments. So, so I'm going to change gears a little bit, unless there's something neuroanatomical that you'd like to add. I know that, or, or, I mean, uh, neurological. I know that we talked about amino acids. I know we talked about monoamines. I know we talked about chemicals versus neurotransmitters. I, I, there are a handful of ways of, of dividing this out. I didn't spend as much time on the neuroanatomy or the neuroconnectivity, uh, in part because it seems like the stories are just so raw still. They are, and um, a lot of the neuroanatomy, the findings are, we note this in several studies, some, some studies say differently, but we're not sure yet what they actually translate to as far as behavior and treatment, and more research is needed into it. So is there anything that I haven't asked you about on the uh, neuro side that you would feel bad if I didn't ask you about? Um. I don't I want you to feel bad. You did a lot of work. <laughs> I did. I don't feel bad at all. I think we covered it well. I think as far as the neuroanatomy, the only major takeaway that I would say is there seem to be five specific regions that are associated with PTSD, so I'll just list those. Um, the first is the amygdala, which is for processing emotional experiences. The next is the insula, which is about what they call interceptive awareness of your emotional state, so just knowing how you're feeling. Um, so this is the, the organ that's absent in men. <laughs> Sorry, I'm glad was, you said it. That was very generous of me. I apologize. But, but you did agree, didn't you? I just nodded. I, I nod to many things you say. Um, Go ahead. Then there's the hippocampus, which is my favorite because it's named after a seahorse. But um, that's the learning and memory one. Um are involved in learning and memory. There's the anterior cingulate cortex, which is in inhibiting and controlling motor fu functions as associated with emotional responses. And then lastly, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is the emotional appraisal of an experience, as well as the physiologic response that you start to have, which we haven't really touched on, but the physiological response to any stress, which is increased heart rate, blood pressure, and things like that. Um, and so I just wanted to list that these are the five major um, neuroanatomical structures that scientists still need to study and see what we find. So I just, I mean, I think the amygdala is, is pretty obvious. The insula wasn't something that I was tracking so much. Mm -hmm. I've been impressed with um, how difficult people, how difficult it is for people who are under stress to learn and, and recall things. Right. Right, so that, that also makes sense. Now the anterior cingulate, um, did you say anterior cingulate or anterior cingulate gyrus? I said anterior cingulate cortex. Cortex, okay. So, so I think the uh, anterior cingulate gyrus is associated with like uh, OCD kinds of things, um, but the anterior cingulate I'm not as familiar with either. And then the ventromedial cortex, mm -hmm. you said, is this something that I could also interpret as, as saying how we view the importance of those emotions? Is that a fair way of thinking about that? 
Is, is it something that's sort of a meta kind of part of the brain that looks at how, we, how we're doing things, or is it a little simpler than that? To be honest, that sounds great. I don't know if I have the, the, okay. the, the necessary credentials to specifically say yes or no. Um, when I read Emotional Appraisal, that was similar to my thought process of appraising and kind of understanding what emotions you're having. Um, but more importantly, what I stuck on with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex was that physiologic response because we sometimes don't talk about that as much. Okay. And, and I wouldn't have thought about that either as, as coming through the, the, I mean, I always think of ventromedial as sort of like these emotional places because of the association mm -hmm. in, in schizophrenia of mm -hmm. ventromedial, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and ventromedial cortex, right. right, with these pathways that seem to be affected by dopamine. All right, let's, I, I want to now uh, throw out some treatment words. Um, benzodiazepines. Well, I think I touched on that a little bit earlier. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we still have that as far as like shelf exam and board prep. That is one of the answers to what we could use, um, especially in an acute setting. But the research seems to signify and imply that it's not necessarily helpful. And as you mentioned in your experience, it could possibly be harmful. Yeah, I think a lot of the data says that it's harmful, it's unhelpful. I've conceptualized that as being benzodiazepines interfere with cognition, right? Learning and memory. Mm -hmm. And if you're giving somebody a benzodiazepine, if the model is fear extinction, how do you cognitively override what might be either a genetic predisposition or something based on the factors that we talked about with the threat paradigm? How can you learn to cognitively override the way that you're emotionally responding to something if you can't learn? Right. right. Or that makes sense. The other caveat would be um, in Potentially enforcing someone's substance abuse. Oh yes, with uh, long-term prescription. Yeah, one of the preceptors that I worked with at the VA in Houston, a person I, I there were so many people at the VA in Houston that I admired so much, and uh, n not just my preceptor, uh, Dr. Garcia. I'm sorry, Dr. Gomez. I had was it two Dr. Garcias and one Dr. Gomez? Hey, sorry, I digress. Um, but one of the other preceptors said PTSD is a really good mnemonic itself. I can't remember what the PT and D stood for, but S was substance misuse, right? Mm -hmm. Substance misuse is so highly com comorbid as people try to find some way to numb the uh, reliving experiences that they consistently experience, right? And so um, that, that use of benzodiazepines seems to not only be perhaps unhelpful in terms of helping to treat the condition, but it also seems to lend itself to substance use disorders. So, yeah, very difficult. Uh, the next word, beta blockers. So we're now talking about prevention. Right, um, and actually this one was interesting to me because it's kind of what we talked about in the beginning. You come in with this idea and then sometimes you find that the research doesn't necessarily go there. So beta blockers, just for those who might not know, are a main approach that's thought to prevent the development of PTSD. But some of the studies that I looked at said that there was no, no benefit or no, um, no prevention, I guess, seen. I don't know if anybody else has anything to add to that. Well, I know for a while, in terms of biomarkers, they were trying to use systolic blood pressure, mm -hmm. though beta blockers aren't particularly effective at treating hypertension, but more, more the rate control, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it is, Kind of interesting, but it seems, in my estimation, that that's more related to cortisol playing an impact on blood pressure rather than 
than adrenergic kinds of approaches or adrenergic pathways. Yeah. Um, so no, no clear benefit based on what we read. Yes. Again, this is not the deepest dive into all the treatments. No. We, we, we're commenting on uh, generally what we saw. There might be a few places where we take it a little bit deeper, maybe in a minute here. Dave's looking at me. Are you going to get to that meta-analysis or not? The answer is yes. It's shortly ahead of us. Um, Prazosin. So according to our question banks, if you're taking the shelf exam... <laughs> For uh, if you're having nightmares and PTSD, it's indicated that you take that at bedtime. Though you found data that didn't yeah. suggest prazosin was effective. I think the Abdella article said um, that a large, uh, a large study looking at prazosin versus placebo found no mm -hmm. difference between the two. Right. So it started off saying that prazosin had showed early promise in early studies and that they were quite hopeful specifically for sleep-related symptoms in PTSD, and that could include nightmares. But several studies after that have failed to reproduce those effects. And there was one large randomized control study that actually, in comparison to placebo, showed no difference, um, which was a little disheartening and surprising to hear. But as Dave said, for exam purposes, prazosin equals... <laughs> Nightmares. <laughs> Nightmare treatment. I always thought that was very interesting. Um, we had a question that we left hanging out a while ago. Did you yes, find the answer to that? I did. So I didn't get the chance to do a super deep dive, but I did find that there are only two medications that are FDA approved for PTSD treatment, and they are sertraline and proxetine. So you were correct. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Good job. Even <laughs> a fist bump over the microphone here. I think the appropriate response to that is even a blind hog gets an acorn now and then. <laughs> Um, and also of note, so it wasn't duloxetine, which is Cymbalta, um, but fluoxetine is used as an off-label treatment. And which is kind of strange because I'm quite certain that all of the studies that have been done, or the majority of the studies that have been done with fluoxetine were negative. Like they weren't, they didn't separate from placebo, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, so it, it is not FDA approved, but still occasionally used. Yeah, and, and again, I, I do like to stick with the FDA indications uh, as much as I can. There was a, a time when I, I thought, oh, it's an SSRI. <laughs> of course it will work, and probably an SNRI will. And yet, I think the data the, the more I look at the data, the more I realize that and one SSRI does not equal another SSRI and probably one SNRI does not equal another SNRI. I, I believed for a long time that at least Effexor didn't have the same kind of data for treatment of neuropathic pain that, that duloxetine does. Effexor is uh, which is SNRI. It's, um, Venlafaxine, mm -hmm. yeah, and that perhaps does venlafaxine, which is the metabolite and later, later patented, uh, may or may not be equivalent as well. So I think uh, there might be new data on the the uh, venlafaxine and neuropathic pain. So don't don't hold me to neuropathic pain, but at least for a long time we only had data for one of those SNRIs being effective in neuropathic pain. So so I think um, paying attention to the idea that. that the specific medication matters might help us understand in the future what it is that we don't understand about the the models of depression anxiety ptsd and so forth and so those might be worth uh, following and, and speaking to that i found a study when we were looking at biomarkers that tried to establish in effect with escitalopram or lexapro in relation to bdnf mm -hmm. or brain derived neurotrophic factor mm -hmm. which surprisingly to me um, in the study they found that ptsd was inversely correlated with BDNF, which I would think that 
you would have increased BDNF. So hold on, PTSD is inversely correlated or the treatment was inversely correlated? So let me just uh, kind of parse this statement. It said BDNF is implicated in dendritic spine density, synaptic plasticity, memory formation, mm-hmm. as well as a number of psychiatric disorders. Chronic exposure to stress is associated with elevated BDNF, which I would think would be the opposite. And it said in the basal lateral amygdala and decreased levels in the hippocampus. So maybe it's not. So, so it might be kind of that thing we talked about earlier about the chronic effects of trauma. Um, you see that clearly in the hippocampus with difficulty with memory. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that's one of the other challenges with... So, so I want to maybe make a statement that we should have said earlier. There is a lot of good test retestability and diagno- diagnosis of PTSD. So it's really easy to get a lot of iterator reliability on correctly pulling in somebody with PTSD into a study. The challenge that we have after that is that each of those entrant persons who enter the study, each of those people, um, may have comorbid symptoms of depression, anxiety, uh, cognition, and so forth. And there's also a lack of clarity around neurological correlates, right? We talked about the five or six different paradigms mm-hmm. for that. And so when you start thinking about how how big the footprint of PTSD can be, and yet we've kind of narrowed it down, and maybe even more so with the ICD-9 or ICD-11 criteria, into these very cookie cutter things from the 10,000 or so, or 186,000 potential (laughs) presentations that you mentioned earlier. Um, I I think that speaks to the idea that perhaps the nuances between the treatments might become important at some point when we understand the illness better. Yeah. And also talk about biomarkers potentially being more personal to that patient and how you would approach their specific treatment as well. Their PTSD, their treatment, their condition. I think that's a great point. Um, I want to, I'm down to my last three notes that I want to talk about before we finish this. And by the way, this is, I think that we're in an hour and 27 minutes or 21 minutes at this point, speaks to the amount of reading and research and the complexity of the topic. Uh, As I close in on the end, um, resilience. Anybody want to take that one? I could start with this one. Um, This is actually very interesting because this is something that I think you and I had spoken about going into it of essentially what leads one individual to develop PTSD and somebody else not to. Um, And this was in a scientific study, at least the research that I was looking at, but one, one of the papers, and I'm sorry, I can't remember which one, It defined resilience, Um, it gave the author's definition for it, and it seemed to say that patients who have high resilience have lower lower likeliness to develop PTSD. And the way that they described resilience was that it embodies personal qualities that enable one to thrive in a fearful situation. Um, And they kind of gave some examples. One of the interesting ones was spirituality, because that wouldn't come to my mind, but it does make sense. measuring the tenacity, pressure and control in difficult situations, and adaptability and support. Um, Again, these were, to me at least, it seemed a little bit vague because it doesn't define what makes one person quote unquote more resilient than somebody else, but I think it's a very interesting question and I would kind of love to learn more about it. I think this topic ended up being so complex that it would have been hard to get that. At one point there was some data about something that I think was called protein Y 
and a question mm -hmm. about whether protein Y in the C CSF was um, some sort of biological marker or some sort of predisposing benefit that helped people be more resilient against uh, trauma. I know that when I deployed the first time to Iraq, we really didn't talk. We, t we talked about some things that were mental health related. As many of you uh, may know, there was a, just this pandemic or, uh, or maybe epidemic of suicide uh, associated with the war in Iraq and the war in uh, Afghanistan. And so one of the things that came out over time as, as uh, the organizations involved in trying to maintain a healthy fighting force began to realize how much suicide was decaying, you know, the ability to wage that conflict. Um, one of the things that I saw popping up over time was programs that we had to sit in for hours on end prior to, to deployment. I think I mentioned to you that there was a lead up to deployment for the units that were regular army that would, have, there would be this prolonged lead in to um, going on uh, boots on the ground, and then there would be a handoff that was a boots on the ground handoff, and and this process of going in and leaving, and then drawing down was a fairly complicated process, and the lead up for that and the drawdown, even in uh, my situation where it was accelerated because I was uh, uh, a reservist and I was uh, a, a physician reservist, so we had these special kinds of protections built in to limit the amount of time that we were. Hold, uh, deployed by the military or, or under deployment orders, um, there, there was this tremendous change in the kind of uh, preparation that we were given. And I remember before the, I want to say the 2010 deployment that I was involved in, um, we, we had these classes that were specifically designed to help us learn how to be more resilient, and I think they spoke to all of those things you're talking about, in addition to relying on the natural supports and using the natural strengths that we have, so the, the role of family and friends and, and mm -hmm. being able to address difficult times, but in addition to that, not just get by, but also supersede, right? Right. Not, not just manage stress, but um, manage it beyond that, and I think you kind of alluded to that with, you know, not just get through, but dominate the stress, right? <laughs> and become a better person through the POP process. And I was very intrigued by that. And I, I haven't seen outcome data. I, I think the MIREC, or not the MIREX, the MIREX are the VA um, kind of centers of excellence. And there's also a materials uh, organization within the military that I know stopped into Iraq and, and they were doing some yearly reports on suicide and mental health and you can actually look those up and they're very interesting and that group actually came through and I, I was interviewed by that group at one point and I don't know that we ever found out what the outcomes were that I've seen um, but I'd be very fascinated to see if their interventions they, they feel like they were able to seek signal from those uh, resiliency interventions I don't know if you guys run across anything like that yeah um I, I didn't, but I'm interested to know now. The wheels are turning <laughs> a little bit. Uh, second to last uh, comment or question, 51 meta-analyses, or yeah. 51 <laughs> studies, one meta-analysis. Um, and do you mind if I, I get on my soapbox too and I'm done with this? <laughs> I know I, we've I been think, running for a while. so. I think the point is I say a phrase and you comment any way you want. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, this was probably the most complete study that I was able to ascertain on complex PTSD and proposed treatments, 51 randomized controlled trials, um, and they were operating on the ICD-11 classification. Okay. Where did you find this uh, 
this meta-analysis? Was this a Cochrane review by any chance, or was this? I wish. Uh, it was Cambridge University. So adequate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not an American university. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Turn our noses up. Uh, I'll, I'll shut up before I hurt myself here. <laughs> Um, so the, the meta-analysis sought to identify, identify treatments effective for complex PTSD, and their conclusion was further research is needed to develop um, effective interventions, but here's kind of the breakdown. CBT, and most of the studies use trauma-focused CBT mm -hmm. as their modality, and exposure alone therapy had a moderate large or large effect on negative self-concepts in complex PTSD. Um, however, EMDR, which was also tried, only had one trial with usable data and didn't seem to have any effect on negative self-concepts. Was that the only outcome they were looking for at that, was negative self-concepts? Because I, I mean, that's mm -hmm. one of the three... One of the criteria elements. Yeah, it would have been, been only one of the three. Yeah. So... Um, so that was just one element that they're looking at, but it just yielded to the fact we either need more data for EMDR to treat that element or EMDR possibly isn't effective at treating negative self-concept. So one of the first things I think about when I hear it was effective on this one element is uh, a group that's looking at, at p-hacking essentially, right? We, we didn't find a net benefit of this treatment for complex PTSD, so we'll see if it helps with one of the elements. Because we want, we want psychotherapies to work. Yeah, <laughs> and if I was gonna distill one message from all of the um, psychotherapies, which typically were in the CBT framework, mm -hmm. I would say that um, they all sought to find some form of therapy that was gonna be helpful, because it seems to be helpful for PTSD in the trauma-focused framework, mm -hmm. but that didn't appear to be as effective for complex PTSD. I wanna um, go to one of the articles that you shared with me, yeah. um, Cohen and Hyen, H-I-E-N. So this was the treatment of women with substance abuse, uh, and PTSD. I think uh, they use the phrase complex trauma mm -hmm. maybe more than they did complex PTSD. And I think uh, just very quickly, this was a group of people that responded to a newspaper advertisement. Does that sound right? Um, and it, it seems like that would meet the criteria for a convenience population. Wasn't that the language that they used before? Yeah. And what they found was, they, so they used two different modalities, and I thought this was very interesting. They used uh, <laughs> seeking safety versus relapse prevention, right? So, so they embodied these in a CBT model, and they said, okay, we're going to do the seeking safety model, we're going to do the relapse prevention model. And then it wasn't clear to me what the third arm was, if that was... Uh, uh, like a wait list uh, model, that's quite often what happens, or a, a treatment of, as usual TAU model, right? But what they found was that there was some reduction in trauma or in PTSD, there was some reduction in alcohol use, but there was no redu reduction in substances otherwise. And there was no difference between treatments in terms of depression, dissociation, or psychosocial functioning, or psychosexual functioning either. And again, I, I'm left with the idea that on one of the very specific articles just to you know kind of drill down from the big picture where you said well we found maybe in if you summarize all these articles the meta-analysis perhaps some form of CBT helps with self-function but I think we see that no psychotherapy is quite the answer for complex PTSD that's my suspicion and perhaps going back to 
one of the comments I made earlier about uh, the ability to reliably find PTSD. To, so, so if I go talk to somebody and Lexi goes to talk to somebody and you go talk to somebody, Dave, and Melody goes to talk to somebody, the odds are um, we're all going to come back with the same diagnosis if the diagnosis is PTSD, right? Assuming that we're looking for it and have, you know, capable at, at diagnosing this. And, and we don't have to be hugely capable, just pretty capable, and we're going to be reliably able to do that. And yet, the footprint I mentioned is so vast that we're talking about, well, it helps with this symptom or it helps with that symptom, but nothing seems up with everything yet. Is there anything that might be helpful, like TMS? Uh, that is kind of my hope. <laughs> TMS. Did you think uh, I'd forgotten? No. Okay. <laughs> one, one other thing I was going to comment, oh, too, um, in relation to that um, review article was that they did say that CBT exposure alone and EMDR had moderate or moderate to large effects on disturbed relationships, which was one of those other criterion elements. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to note, though, benefits of all interventions were smaller when compared with nonspecific interventions, such as befriending. Um, Show up and say hi in therapy. Yeah. Just having that therapeutic alliance was, yeah. is still has an effect. Um, and then multivariate meta-regression suggested child onset trauma was associated with poor outcomes, which has higher correlation with what appears to be complex PTSD. So that's... That speaks to the idea that complex PTSD doesn't have a, tar a treatment yet that is the sine qua non of treatments. Yeah, I don't think we're... Uh, anywhere near that ballpark yet. Did I use that word right? Or that phrase right? Sine qua non of treatments? I think so. I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so, so, kind of what we spoke to earlier, the yeah. things that define complex trauma are the things that make P PTSD treatments not seem to work for complex trauma. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe another way of saying this, if I'm a skeptic about the, the reality of a separate diagnosis is maybe said this way. We have treatments now for trauma or PTSD that's non-childhood, non-repetitive, non-inescapable, non-uncontrollable, non-unpredictable, non-repetitive treatments. We have good treatments for that kind of PTSD. When we get into that uh, threat paradigm that isn't extinguished through uh, CBT, we need to find a new treatment for that, if I'm being a skeptic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, TMS. Yeah, so my hope is that this shows promise because there is currently um, clinical trials undergoing the effect of TMS on PTSD biomarkers. And specifically, they're looking at, as terms of primary effects, would be change in amygdala reactivity during fear processing, change in skin conductance in response to trauma, and then secondary outcomes we'll be looking at ventromedial prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, ventromedial prefrontal cortex amygdala function connectivity, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex amygdala functional connectivity, change in fear-potentiated startle response, and then change in PTSD hyperarousal symptoms. So that, I believe, is expected to occur in 2015, so they're going to conduct those trials. Um, I know there was... So, so should have been started already, is what you're saying? Yeah, I, I saw the, the clinical trial, like, um, proposal... Mm -hmm. So it's going to... It's in the registry, the yeah. gov, regi uh, what is it, trials.gov or clinicaltrials.gov, the registry tr uh, place. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and one of their goals with that is stimulating a hypoactive medial prefrontal cortex might lead to activation, which successfully 
um, leads to top-down modulation of exaggerated amygdala response and extinction learning. Um, and possibly, maybe there is an area where um, these two diagnoses could share an etiology that leads to better outcomes in both, mm -hmm. is kind of my hope or hypothesis. Or so I'm going to go back to the question that I asked earlier and we speculated I might have it right, which <laughs> is, you said top-down yeah. processing. Was that the word you used? So does that mean that we have a greater ability then to think about the symptoms we have and say, I don't have to be fearful to ourselves, or I don't have to be stressed by this? Yeah, I, I think it would extingu extinguish or at least dampen some of those fear responses that occur. Okay. Um, so no matter how significant the long-acting, or, or how, I think, uh, Melody, you spoke to this a little bit, there are things that seem to predis predispose us to having this inextinguishable fear response. Yes. And in addition to that, there are risk factors that make it more likely to be inextinguishable. And Dave, I think what you're saying is this allows us to have the cognitive ability to now extinguish that fear and say that's not a rational fear to maintain or it's not rational to maintain that um, threat environment, a feeling of being in the threat environment. Okay. You're nodding yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, let, let me ask another question then. Uh, RTMS, um, I think initially we worried that it was a very small signal. I th I'm under the impression that uh, RTMS as a treatment for depression has improved since it was first made public. Are there other locations that RTMS is looking at that might help with uh, trauma? You mentioned uh, the amygdala and some of the other places, but I think what you said ultimately was the medial, uh, medial frontal cortex, the MFC. Yeah. That's where the big money is right now. Yeah, I think it's mostly, it's like the executive functions essentially leading to the fear center and regulating, telling that this is not something to send us into overdrive over, to put it in, in caveman language. I appreciate that, actually. <laughs> I, that's, that's kind of what I need to hear for me to have it make sense, right? If I, if I can't make something go into caveman language, I can't make it fit into a bigger story. And, and I, caveman language, for me, is part of the bigger story. I might be misquoting, but I believe it was Einstein that gets attributed with this quote that if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. Well, if I can't if I can't hear something simply, I probably just can't understand it. So you, we, we now have Einstein's version of caveman and uh, Roundy's version of caveman. If I can speak of myself in the third person briefly, um, I think that covers everything that everybody had prepared for this. Did, is there anything that I have left out or not asked questions about, or that we haven't covered that you guys would like to add, Melody? I don't think so. I think you did a very great job of putting it all together. <laughs> well, thank you. Lexi? I'm good. I think everyone did a great job. Dave, anything okay. that, that you'd like to add that we, we may have skipped? No, this is just kind of like a, a parting soapbox. Well, hold on before you do parting soapboxes, because <laughs> yeah. I'll give you a chance for that. I want to make sure that there wasn't something that, that you didn't get to say that was part of the data that you'd researched. Yeah, I think... Part of the difficulty on that is disseminating how much of it is quality data 
And that's why I, I liked that the randomized control child was looking for things that could potentially manipulate that data. Um, you know, as we addressed, these patients are likely to have comorbid disorders, substance use, all of that muddies the waters um, when yeah. we're looking at this type of thing. So controlling for that in the future would be ideal. And difficult. Yeah, as well. Yeah. All right, so I think take home points and soapbox Normally I just say take-home points, <laughs> uh, but I, I'd like to make sure you have a chance for your, your soapbox or your take-home point. Uh, let's start with you, Lexi, if that works for you. Okay, my take-home point, um, since I didn't do as deep of a dive into the biology, I really found all that super interesting um, and kind of what I like about talking to Dr. Roundy in particular about a lot of um, psych topics is bringing in that biology and the science behind it. Um, I think that's a unique point of view, and I really enjoy that. You get an A just writing that down right now. If you heard Make my sure pen to, click, uh, let Dr. Thomas. Oh, know. that's right. That's, I forgot she's the one that gives you the grade. My you bad. can give me a grade too. <laughs> well, here, let me write it down on a sticky. You get an A. Um, thank you. That's a very kind compliment, Melody. Okay, now I have to follow up on that one. Yeah, how are you going to schmooze better? Because I knew I did have my yellow pad out. No pressure. Um, so let me start see. off by saying Dr. Roundy's the best. Oh, and write another A on a sticky note. And um, I think my take-home point is just this was already such a complex topic, PTSD itself, and then we add this new um, <laughs> CPTSD, um, and it's such a to complex topic with so many different things Thank to consider. You. And um, I think it's really interesting to dive into it, and I think there's so much to still learn and that it's kind of exciting. I, I do like that. I, I, I really, one of my favorite parts about podcasts, and I just, I, I just have to add on to what you've said, one of my very favorite parts about podcasts is that quite often I have students who afterwards talk about how they see medicine differently because of the dive, right? So it, it's not very often I think that attendings ask you why the data is terrible. Usually we're asking you what's the textbook answer, right? Right. And in this case, what I think we try to do is say, where does the textbook get its information from? And how does the textbook differ from this murky waters that we're swimming through to figure out that textbook language, right? And I feel like that was something that all of you kind of left us with, and that's actually pretty common. And I also have to add that one of my favorite parts of doing this is when I have students who are clearly passionate about what they're reading. They found something they really like. I'm, I'm fully aware that uh, as a student, not everything I read excited me, right? Not everything I read made me go, huh, that is really cool, right? Sometimes I had to like go, you know, my, my greatest weakness is visual spatial and mm -hmm. to figure out where the, the sphincter of Odie is. Is that the one that's on the, <laughs> right. is that the gallbladder, right? Or is that the pancreas? Right. It's like a shared sphincter, right? Yeah. Between the two. Oh, thank yeah. goodness. I was on the right track. Right? So, so it's not that I'm not interested by it, but it's hard for me to learn. And one of the things that I, I think I figured out is that when students are enjoying what they're reading about or learning, something happens that's different and the learning goes up exponentially. And I'm actually really thrilled that you guys had fun with this. Melody, I wish I could, I wish we had video. <laughs> I thought about having YouTube of this. 
um, because uh, that smile is unbelievable and <laughs> it speaks volumes. Dave, you get uh, you're smiling over there as well, uh, yes. and you're ready for the soapbox, I hope, <laughs> and the take home. All right, it's all yours. I'm not going to stop you either. <laughs> well, it's hard to transition from Melody's smile into this topic. <laughs> all right, it, I'll go straight. It, it's, it's not that hard because I, I think whatever your soapbox is, I'm I'm guessing that we're all on that same soapbox with you. Yeah. Um, so I would just preface this by an earlier statement that I made that this is going to be one of those things that hopefully as it comes on to um, your general practitioner or um, any arena really at, we're nearing the end of third year in every rotation I would say you will see this if you haven't already or you've seen it and you haven't recognized it and increasing that recognition is I think crucial to leading to better outcomes yeah. so one of the things that I did was pull the epidemiological data from the CDC uh, that says that at least one in seven children have experienced child abuse and or neglect in the past year, and this is likely an underestimate um, since a lot of that's not being reported, and I would just mention that statement I said about children won't tell you that they're being abused. It's, it's up to us to kind of suss that out. Um, one in four women and nearly one in 10 men have experienced contact sexual violence, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner during their lifetime and reported some form of inter-partner inter violence-related impact. Um, in, in the U.S., one in four girls and one in 13 boys experience child sexual abuse at some point in childhood. One in four. That's staggering. Um, females exposed to child sexual abuse are at two to 13 times increased risk of sexual victimization in adulthood. And individuals who experience child sexual abuse are twice the risk of non-sexual intimate partner violence. Um, and then if people are, are, are unaware of adverse child events or ACEs, this would be a good thing to punch into a calculator and kind of determine your own risk. As we know, 61% uh, of adults surveyed across 25 states reported they have experienced at least one type of adverse childhood event, and nearly one in six reported they had experienced four or more types of ACEs. Um, and if I wasn't pressed for time, I would have also gotten the, the data on veterans, but any patients that you have that are veterans, you should always be vigilant to um, see how they're doing and and see that they might be silently struggling with this, even just you know, PTSD, not to mention looking for complex PTSD. So I think the first time you started to bring that up as a soapbox, I think I said, by the way, be careful. And um, one of the, I want to talk about that just a little bit more because there, there is a very difficult issue in medicine where um, we, we have had uh, people who say, I'm sure there's trauma, even though I can't prove it. And I've heard a number of people who have been uh, very, very challenged by having to prove that they're not hurting their child and they may not have been, right? Yeah. And, and that's a very difficult spot to put somebody in. As physicians, we have this mandate of do no harm. And, and what you're describing, if we're not careful and do that with the best data possible, has the potential to do harm. Now, the, the, the part I want to add to that, though, that's not as obvious, 
is that sometimes physicians get so caught up in doing no harm that they let a lot of harm go unaddressed, I think. And how we balance that, I think, says a great deal about what kind of physician we are, right? I think we, we have to start with the perspective that we're going to make mistakes and how we choose to make those mistakes, whether it's on the side of potentially offending somebody that isn't harming their children or identifying a kid that's being harmed, right? Where we choose to make those mistakes, that's a choice, right? We're going to make the mistakes, but which side we choose to make those mistakes on I think we should think about very, very carefully. And I think you're making an incredibly compelling case to first of all, learn how to identify child abuse. I think there's examples where it's obvious, right? I think we have some pretty good data that uh, rotational fractures, right? That certain kinds of uh, injuries with arms, uh, musculoskeletal injuries, uh, repeated visits to the emergency room. There are a, a tremendous number of things that I think you're, you're all nodding your head, so it sounds right. like the things we learned when I was in mm -hmm. uh, medical school are still accurate. And we also know that quite often when we are um, identifying trauma, we don't always have the ability to change that, right? I was speaking with uh, somebody who's in law school recently who, who said essentially, quite often we get charges of domestic violence. It's very clear that one of the partners is uh, abusive and meets criteria. They don't use meets criteria, that's a, a medicine term, right? Uh, I think this person said that essentially they clearly have violated the law, and yet when we get to court, the person that is having the crime committed against them is so in love with their partner that they then back out. And those people end up, you know, we know this, they end up dead. And so we, we have these situations where we're not only required to do no harm, and that keeps us from doing good, but we have these situations where we feel powerless. And those can be very demoralizing, right? Those are the situations that burn people out. So Dave, I'm going to um, piggyback on what you said and agree with you more forcefully this time rather than adding my voice of caution. I appreciate that you came back to it a great deal. And also add that we have had some podcasts that we've done on ACEs. And for anybody that makes us through this podcast, I would challenge them in the future to come up with a podcast that helps us as physicians to be better at identifying trauma. So anybody that's listened to this and is looking for a podcast idea, I think the step is not to be fearful of identifying uh, trauma and being aversive to uh, following up on it, but finding now um, best practices for being able to identify that. And how we as physicians can then use whatever best practices are available to help move people into safest places, right? Think about the uh, burden. We can spend hours trying to get people to stop smoking, hours to get people to better manage their diet. Those things are ubiquitous, and yet one of the things that's, that is equally as preventable as many cases of diabetes and many cases of hypertension and many cases of uh, congestive heart failure and so forth. One of those things that is most preventable, I don't think I've ever heard a good description of how we tackle that head on, right? How do we screen for it? And what's the data on screening and what, what kind of outcomes can we expect based on what we know? And so a challenge thrown down for future podcast <laughs> listeners based on what is a remarkably persuasive 
um, set of statements on your part to, as physicians, be better. And I appreciate that. I had a different take home, um, but it seems rather insignificant in light of the amount of people that are hurt and that you're pointing out. So um, rather than add my take home today, I'll shut up and hopefully that will uh, elevate how important I think what you said was. And uh, thank you for taking time to do that. Uh, on that very, very, very uh, grim note, and something that we as physicians can improve on, team out. Team out. Team out. <laughs>